Podcasts by Discovery in partnership with Sama, the SAPPF, and the UFFP. My name is Mosa Moshavela. I am a specialist in family medicine and primary health care. So what that means essentially is that it's probably more accurate to say that I'm not really a specialist, but more of a generalist practitioner. So I like to connect the dots and uh, I invite you to join me as we connect some dots today. I'm also an associate professor of public health at the University of KwaZulu-Natal where I'm also the Dean of the School of Nursing and Public Health. Today I'd like to discuss the safety of healthcare workers, but uh, take a deeper dive into the protection of clinicians, and specifically do so in the current context of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm intentional in referring to both the safety and also the protection of, of clinicians. It is important that I draw a distinction between your safety and your protection because as you can imagine, there are many role players who are supposed to play their part in your safety and yet for your protection, you, you take the lead and you are responsible. See, I believe that protection is going to come from you and be driven by you clinicians yourselves. And you will achieve this through your own self-efficacy and agency. It is important, therefore, that even in the middle of this outbreak, uh, this, this pandemic that we are in, that you do not feel disempowered. If you do feel disempowered, then it is my hope that you will feel a little bit more empowered by the end of this discussion. I remain fully cognizant of the fact that the general discussions and debates so far around the safety of clinicians have centered very much on the availability and accessibility of personal protective equipment or PPE, and rightly so, as, as I will come back uh, to this in, in a bit. The first thing that I want to mention is that in our line of work, there's arguably nothing more disempowering than a lack of information or knowledge. This might sound cliche, but it's true that we often don't know what we don't know. I have learned that to be aware of something does not mean that we have knowledge about it. Further, I have learn that to have knowledge about something does not necessarily mean to comprehend it. And to comprehend a thing does not necessarily translate into motivation. Motivation itself is not necessarily going to turn into action or practice. And most importantly, to action or practice something does not mean that we do so consistently. So whenever we are confronted with a new disease about which we know very little initially, such as is the case with COVID-19 currently, this makes it very difficult for us to execute our function as clinicians. 
and it challenges us to learn anew and as fast as possible and this is indeed not easy we we saw this previously with uh, hiv in the late 90s and early 2000s when the more senior clinicians found it very challenging having to attend training sessions and sometimes to learn from us as junior colleagues it is difficult to say i don't know and not knowing is uncomfortable especially in clinical practice because we are taught that there is very little room for uncertainty and error to the extent that we can end up experiencing a lot of distress emotionally and psychologically and feel powerless and helpless when situations seem to get out of control we learned then as we continue to learn now that incorrect or lack of knowledge can result in a loss of life for someone the message here is empower yourself with information the knowledge and experience we have is not enough especially as we navigate uncharted waters like the ones in which we currently find ourselves so educate yourself as much and as soon as possible so that you can effectively safeguard yourself through awareness knowledge and understanding this brings me to my second point and i have not forgotten about ppe we will get there so my second point is about why we are making all the fuss about the need for clinicians to feel empowered to protect themselves we have learned over the years um from hiv and other experiences we've had over the decades that at a health system level or policy or management level of course the safety of uh, clinicians is about ensuring that we do not erode our human resources and clinical expertise and end up reducing our capacity to care for patients health services in such circumstances become weak when the health workforce is thinned off by health worker illness and absenteeism of clinicians in the case of covid-19 it is devastating when clinicians become infected with sars-cov-2 but especially when lives of clinicians are lost and we have seen this unfold in other countries and there is no reason to believe that our clinicians are immune so no doubt health workers are clearly a high risk group for the inoculation of this virus and the sequence of events that unfold from there may include the loss of life just to reiterate I recognize that the roles and responsibilities of the government and private sector decision makers, regulators, administrators, managers is imperative in ensuring the safety of clinicians more broadly. As is the role and responsibility of the watchdogs such as labor unions and professional bodies or associations are all absolutely vital i can actually go to great length just talking about these actors but we'll leave that for another day 
Today I want to focus on the roles and responsibilities of the individual clinicians. And again, let me be clear here. This is not to say that you as individuals, you as individual clinicians are solely responsible for all that is right or wrong with the broader safety of health workers or clinicians. However, we have a golden rule that we live by and practice by, and that is to first do no harm. We do harm when we do not practice infection control consistently. And this is because we become agents of infectious disease transmission, either knowingly or unknowingly. It is truly unfortunate that our training as clinicians, whilst it is great and wonderful at preparing us for the treatment of diseases clinically, it really does not do justice in terms of equipping us as to the value, let alone consistent practice of prevention and infection control. These are core subjects in public and occupational health. When we ignore infection control, the phrase we secretly dislike and rather leave that task to someone else like the infection control nurse, much like we do with notions of quality assurance, then we become part of the problem, certainly not the solution. We risk the occupational hazard of acquiring disease, and by so doing, we let our patients and ourselves down. We risk passing the infection to our patients through nosocomial transmission, and especially those vulnerable to severe forms of COVID-19. We risk passing the disease to our colleagues as well, people who trust and count on us. And sadly, we risk passing the disease to our social networks, including our friends and families. My dear clinicians, this cannot be, and to my third point, it cannot be that we continue to bury our heads in the sand, as they say about an ostrich, when it comes to infection, pre prevention and control. Yes, our duty is to save lives, a mission we are all very clear about, but we do not save lives when we put ourselves at the risk of infection through lack of commitment to infection control and prevention. Perhaps we also need to be very clear about the fact that in order to save lives, we must commit to breaking the chain of transmission of infectious diseases. This is ever so important when we deal with a disease for which no treatment exists, and especially when we are right in the middle of an outbreak. Breaking the chain of transmission matters all the time, but it is ever so important during these extraordinary times in which we find ourselves. We may not have been adequately taught about prevention of disease or infection control, but our clinical practice demands that we become agile, lifelong learners through continued professional development and self-driven learning. We all know this.
We must gather, therefore, the courage to go back to the basics. And we did this with HIV back in the 90s and 2000s. And we are doing it now. We've got to do it now. We did this with XDR-TB, extensively drug-resistant TB. And for those who are doing it now, we know that it is necessary to do so. Whenever we are confronted with a new infectious disease, let's go back to the basics of infectious disease triad or epidemiologic triad. Let's study again the agent, the host, and the environment. This means we must pivot. We must pivot back to virology and familiarize ourselves with SARS-CoV-2. It is comforting for me to know that this virus is an enveloped RNA virus. Therefore, it is a simple, weak, and easily deactivated virus by water and soap. And also at 56 degrees Celsius, it is deactivated. Even though it might survive for up to three days or so, we can wipe it clean with disinfectants and detergents. Yes, that's right. We must pivot back to immunology and understand where the ACE2 receptors are located in the respiratory tract, to which SARS-CoV-2 will bind. The nature of the immune response that will result thereof must be well understood. And the meaning and implications of the cytokine storm often associated with the severe form of COVID-19. That way, we can have a better handle on the typical and atypical clinical presentations and the different forms of clinical severity that patients may present with, as well as the treatment options that are currently being explored through clinical trials. That way, we do not become victims of misinformation and irrational behavior. But most importantly, we will get to fully comprehend the transmission dynamics of this weak and simple virus. And therefore, we will successfully break the chain of its transmission. To my fourth point, it is about the third leg of the epidemiologic or infectious disease triad, the environment. Again, cliche but true, as the politicians say, the virus does not move, we move it. We pick up the droplets containing the virus and we transport them from one person to another, one equipment to another, one surface to another, one room to another, and one place to another. We even transport these droplets home to our families. When we commit to breaking the chain of transmission, we prevent the spread of the virus by getting a handle on our environment. Please, colleagues, learn and understand your environment and remain vigilant at all times to the ways in which the virus could be transported and commit yourself to disrupting this chain again all the time. The thing is, you can do the right thing most of the time but the one time you miss a step, transmission can occur. Therefore, consistency in this case is fundamental when it comes to, to uh, infectious diseases and to breaking the chain of, of their transmission. I understand that 
This requires behavior change on our part and for many of us for that matter. But we must unlearn and break our old habits to make room for new ways of doing things and accept that this is the new world order that we are going to live with going forward. If you have not seen the new COVID-19 Infection Prevention and Control National Guidelines of 2020, please get yourself a copy right away. Given the fact that we are already undergoing community spread of COVID-19, you can safely assume that your environment can be harboring infectious droplets that any of your patients or even colleagues, including yourself, could be infected with the COVID-19 virus or SARS-CoV-2. We now know that viral load is significantly high two to three days before symptoms appear. And therefore the risk of transmission is quite high at this point and that asymptomatic patients can be infectious, let alone the fact that COVID-19 patients can present with diarrhea or enter through an unrelated medical door, such as the corridors of strokes and trauma patients. Therefore, environmental cleaning in all healthcare settings is fundamental to the process of breaking transmission. In Italy, hospitals which were successful in achieving zero infections of clinicians paid very close attention to environmental factors. It is important that all confirmed COVID-19 patients have a dedicated environment in which they are located and managed, that they are not mixed with other patients. These places should be treated as infectious zones, sometimes referred to as contaminated spaces, even though I don't like uh, to use this word. Cleaning of surfaces, though, has to take place as many times as possible, uh, often as four times a day or even more. Beds have to be two meters apart at minimum, and in the ICU setting, they should be three meters apart to allow for space for equipments as well. Where COVID-19 patients um, are often loca- located, um, the risk of infection is always high. Equipment must not be shared between patients without proper disinfection, and all linen and equipment must be properly removed and cleaned. Waste management and removal must be done under very strict infection control procedures. Room ventilation and airflow has to be checked, um, must be checked by the engineers and it must be compliant. I would further argue that uh, persons under investigation for COVID-19 should, should also not be mixed with general patients or confirmed COVID-19 patients. At all times, we need to ensure that we engage in proper infection prevention and control behavior as clinicians. Now to my last point, but not least at all, the issue of personal protective equipment, PPE. Whilst there are many issues uh, about availability and adequacy of PPE, I believe that no clinician should be put 
in a situation where they have to work without adequate and appropriate PPE. The question of what happens when there is no PPE, the violations of clinicians' rights thereof is also a very important topic, but for another day. When PPE is available, we as clinicians have a responsibility to use it judiciously and appropriately. Based on our knowledge and understanding of transmission dynamics of SARS-CoV-2, as opposed to allowing ourselves to be overcome with irrational fear and behavior and end up using expensive and scarce PPE designed for high-risk environments and using it in low-risk situations. Simply put, it is important to reserve and 95 respirators and full guns for highly aerosolized procedures and environments. As clinicians, we should follow the new COVID-19 national IPC guidelines in this regard, but we must also draw heavily from our understanding and knowledge of transmission dynamics of this virus. SARS-CoV-2 is transmitted through droplets as we know. And there are three types to keep in mind. The relatively larger droplets, which tend to fall within one meter, and the smaller ones, which fall within two meters. It's important to note that there are also droplet nuclei. The droplet nuclei, the third type, are even smaller, and they can float in the air following highly aerosolized procedures, such as may be the case with uh, intubation, tracheostomy, bronchoscopy, nebulization, chest physiotherapy, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, and potentially with some dental procedures and when uh, clinicians are taking nasopharyngeal or oropharyngeal swabs. Once again, consider infectious, the spaces where confirmed COVID-19 patients are isolated or the ICU environments where they are admitted, and be wary of these floating droplet nuclei. Make sure to wash or sanitize your hands regularly. Ensure hand hygiene and to always change gloves between patients. There are many videos on the donning and doffing of PPE for clinicians, um, but our clinical virologist, Dr. Lilicia Gounder, has developed a simple mnemonic to help clinicians remember the sequence of donning PPE. And it's called ham and egg. Yes, like the ham and egg you might have for breakfast. So the H is for hand washing, the A for apron, and the M for mask. In that order. With the egg, the EG is for the eye goggle and the G is for the gloves. That's the order that we will follow when we are donning PPE. Remember that apron could be replaced with gown and goggles could be replaced with face mask or face shield. Face shield rather. When doffing, Think of which item is most contaminated. So the gloves will come off first, followed by the apron, 
and then the eye goggles, and, and then the mask. When an N95 mask is used, please do a fit test and a seal test so that you do not wear it under the illusion that is protecting you when it's not. According to the guidelines, an N95 mask can be used up to seven days if still intact. And a medical or surgical mask can be used up to eight hours in a shift if not taken off and remains intact. Remember to use a sanitizer after you don or doff each item of the PPE. That is, in between the donning of each item or the doffing of each item. And this is important. Remember also not to touch the front of your PPE. These surfaces are contaminated. My own view is that you should also wear shoe or foot gear and headgear when working in highly aerosolized spaces and ensure that you do not take the SARS-CoV-2 home with you. The safety of clinicians require for you to protect yourself, but to also protect others as well. If we are not going to prevent the spread of infection, then as clinicians we are going to contribute to this spread. So let us save lives by making a commitment to break the chain of transmission of SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. I thank you and wish you the very best. This podcast was brought to you by Discovery in partnership with SAMA, the SAPPF and the UFFP.